What kind of impact does volunteering at the VA have on someone deciding on whether or not to apply to medical school? What is the strategy behind applying for the Early Decision Program, or EDP? What is the Bioimmersion Program, and how does it help one prepare for medical school? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Alejandro, a first-year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. All right, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I got a great guest today, Alejandro. How are you doing? I'm doing uh, pretty well. Okay, did I say it right? Did I yeah, say it you right? Said it okay. fantastic. Can you say it for me? Alejandro. Okay, I can't say it like that. So it's, it's a trick to roll the R's. It's, it can be difficult. All right, so we're talking incoming med students. Yep. How does it feel? Amazing and nervous at the same time. Okay. Uh, it's like staring into uh, a giant ravine. You're excited to jump in, but at the same time, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's talk. Let's go back to the beginning. When did you think about becoming a doctor? When did that idea kind um, of enter your consciousness? It it really started uh, when I was young, and um, I always was fascinated with biology and human anatomy and things like that. And um, you know, my parents were very supportive of that. And, but uh, gradually over the years, I felt that uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't entirely what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew I wanted to work in the healthcare field, so I ended up choosing biomedical engineering as my major. And I actually found myself um, following this cute girl into a volunteering opportunity. Ooh! <laughs> at you still together? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. The, Shout out to unnamed cute girl. Okay, <laughs> Sarah. Okay, Sarah. Um, and I followed her into uh, the local VA residence home, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love interacting with the residents there and, like, uh, being a volunteer. I spent as much time as I could there, and eventually when I found myself graduating from biomedical engineering, I was like, maybe maybe I should give this, this medical path a shot. Mm. Um, and so uh, they offered me a job part-time there working as... You know, just an assistant. Yeah, what were you doing at the VA specifically? <laughs> I was a recreational coordinator assistant. Okay, what and does that mean? <laughs> I, I helped develop the the different events mm-hmm. that people would go through for just entertainment. I would help transfer uh, the residents. I would interact with them, talk, help move them from place to place, sometimes change them. Mm-hmm. Just pretty much whatever that needed to be done. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. And it was always so funny because all of my colleagues kind of made fun of me being like, here's the engineer mm-hmm. working as a recreational therapist assistant. And I was, you know, I, I loved my time that I spent there. Mm-hmm. I developed a lot of lasting relationships with not only my coworkers, but also the residents there. Mm-hmm. Do you come from a military background at all? Or was, nope. was the VA completely kind of it was just out, like out of your comfort zone? It was, it was out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I, I do not have any military background. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was something where I got to obtain a lot of wisdom because a lot of times it's I was working specifically with residents that were above the ages of sixty or whatnot, you know, the World War Two vets, the Vietnam vets. And they're hilarious. They're they're an absolute blast and you end up building these connections with people, but it's also kind of sad there because since it is some some of them are on their, you know, last steps, mm-hmm. right? And uh you, you meet a lot of friends, but you also lose them. Mm-hmm. So, But from there, it was actually where I got the opportunity to then volunteer at the Hope Clinic. Mm. Uh, What's nurse, the Hope Clinic? 
the Hope Clinic is a clinic in Midvale, Utah, okay. where they offer free health care to those who are underinsured or un- sorry, uninsured and below the 150% poverty line. All right. And uh, I volunteered there initially as a Spanish translator. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went ahead and uh, developed myself there, working along Jane Powers, who mm-hmm. is an absolutely amazing person. She extremely gifted and talented at running this clinic, all off of donations. Everyone there is a volunteer. And it, I got to really there realize my, my fascination and my my true potential and what I wanted to be mm-hmm. in my future. Mm. So it sounds like you start off not sure about medicine, VA experience, and that kind of morphed into a Hope Clinic experience. Yeah. And that's kind of like the backbone of why you wanted to go to medicine? It, so, I mean, everyone always says that they want to help people, right? Mm-hmm. And um, But I always understood that I could help people in many ways, even as an engineer or whatnot. Uh, it was really those experiences that helped solidify that this was the only option mm-hmm. that was really viable for, for my happiness to, mm-hmm. to be able to help people. Uh, that, that's actually one of the things that, because I, I have the mentality that um, with any amount of determination, determination and aptitude, mm-hmm. you can achieve almost anything, right? And um, I wasn't so much scared of the work or the work ethic of going into medicine. I was more timid if it was what I really wanted to do mm-hmm. and if I could withstand it emotionally. Mm. And uh, those were lessons I learned at the Hope Clinic when many times I had to tell patients very bad news poor news regarding cancers and whatnot, right? Because since, as a Spanish translator, it, it allows you the unique opportunity to be in the f- in the shoes of a doctor, yeah, right? Because the patient doesn't understand the doctor and you're there translating for them. Mm-hmm. And, and you're delivering this message and it's just, you know, that, that was actually one of the days where I almost said I couldn't do it. Mm. Um, I, I almost gave up, but I was, I was very fortunate to have um, a wonderful support group uh, family, friends, and fellow volunteers at the Hope Clinic that really helped me understand the the emotional stress that you can feel sometimes. If I'm just curious because I'm just you know I'm learning about our system. So at the Hope Clinic, if someone is underassured or uninsured and they received a cancer diagnosis, would they? How would like as a translator? How would you? You know, because must, there must be a lot of questions about follow-up care and chemotherapy and things like that. Are they eligible to get that at the Hope Clinic? I mean, or would you become kind of like, you know, an expert in follow-up care or like social work type stuff? I mean, like how, how, how would that happen? Um, working at the Hope Clinic, you really develop a Swiss Army knife approach. You have mm. to be able to do a bit of everything. And um, I found myself before walking into the room, because I was one of the best translators there at that time, mm-hmm. uh, one of the other translators approached me and said, hey, could you translate this um, to this individual? And uh, I made sure I understood what it was, what was happening, mm-hmm. potential future options. And I really, I, I spent a solid half an hour before approaching the patient to really understand and mm-hmm. grasp around what I needed to say and how to best express it. And how it went down was I essentially went into the room and uh, she she was very ecstatic and happy, awaiting good results and actually asked me, you know, bring me the good news. Mm-hmm. And it was it was that difficult. Just you feel that big sigh when you're like, uh, it's not, you know, and you just start elaborating on the test results and you start describing them. Mm-hmm. And you really just get to see this the look on the patient right and mm-hmm. it's 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 a time in which they're extremely vulnerable 
um, upset. Uh, but I found myself just instinctively reaching out, holding her hand, and I just sat with her for about an hour and a half as she cried. And then once she had finished crying whatnot, then we went to the next step where we spoke about the results, uh, a little bit more in detail, and then also options. Mm -hmm. And from there, the, we at the Hope Clinic, we don't offer those kind of services, mm -hmm. but we connect people with uh, programs that allow them to receive those services. So I spent the next week just calling every single cancer institute or whatnot in the mm -hmm. area just to be able to find some way that she could get free mm -hmm. uh, chemotherapy or... Become eligible for eligible Medicaid for or, or all the different programs. Yeah. yeah. Sounds pretty tough. Yeah, it was. And uh, honestly, it was... I would say that was a near breaking point that mm -hmm. dissuaded me entirely from, from this dream. But mm -hmm. I So what was, pushed you forward? I mean, what kept you going? the next patient okay that was that was really because mm -hmm. you know you find yourself right after doing that you have to keep translating you have to go to the next person and really i i had to understand it as as sometimes you'll find yourself in those situations that are just horrendous but mm -hmm. other times you'll find yourself in the capacity in which you're helping people immensely and in both situations regardless you're still helping people and you know that's at the end of the day that's that's part of the job that's awesome yeah that's great no so alejandro um yeah sorry to be a downer <laughs> no 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 well, um you know va hope clinic anything else that you did prior to applying to med school that you felt really prepared you or got you ready for this like medical school journey you're about to embark on um i mean beyond studying biomedical engineering where i was i was able to get wonderful opportunities i already have dissected cadavers with bow mm -hmm. in uh in several classes that are only offered to engineers and then uh, i also participated in a bioimmersion program which mm -hmm. i thought was fascinating what's that let's talk about that so bioimmersion is a wonderful program offered here at the university of utah where they take several design students and biomedical engineers and they pair them together and give them a actually very nice stipend how for, much for the summer uh i think it was something around uh Four thousand or something. That's a lot of that's a lot of coin. Yeah, yeah. it's been a long time. Though, yeah, so okay. I, I could I could be wrong, but uh, regardless, I I found myself able to just shadow doctors mm -hmm. every day for eight to twelve hours a day, even, mm. and I just would go in and watch. But it's very interesting because you're not watching and shadowing just from the perspective of looking at the doctor, but you're trying to look at it uh, from the perspective of engineer, like what you can fix. So I found myself interacting and talking with a lot of doctors, and a lot of them are just so involved and happy, and they all have this awesome idea. Every single doctor has an awesome idea. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. Everyone has an awesome idea because they describe you, oh, well, it would be great if we had this stent that, you know, is biodegradable so it doesn't have to be extracted later on. That's an awesome idea. Mm -hmm. You go ahead and you try and develop ways to come up with that, feasible ways, and from that program, you essentially only go to the first step of the development cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, you only you can develop a prototype, and you work with the design students to develop a poster board that kind of describes the approach and the the initial goals of this prototype. But later on, then you can take it on forward and participate in other programs that we have here, such as bench to bedside. Mm -hmm. 
I was not familiar with Bench to Bedside until later on, mm. and it was by then far too late for me to get involved. But I'm really looking forward to once I'm a medical student, yeah. getting involved into that. Yeah, I think that's. I think there there's a lot of collaboration with the biomedical engineering program. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's been a recent change. Like, it yeah. wasn't bioengineering, and now they're like they're rebranded as biomedical engineering. Yeah. Yes. Were you involved in that at all, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> do they send out some poll to you guys? <laughs> no, I think I think they're just like this is going to be a great new name. The okay. same as they changed they changed the whole backdrop. I mean, it was David. Uh, it was Mr. Tresco. Mr. Yes. Tresco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who who really just spearheaded that ev- evolution in the mm-hmm. biomedical engineering program? Cool. I mean, it looks real cool and. All right, so um, undergrad here at the U, did you work with the pre-med office or? I worked with the pre-med office okay. um, what, what kind way of? later. Okay, way let's talk about that. Um, did you not know about them or because you were kind of in engineering, you didn't know about them? or what? I, I knew about them. I was a little bit timid. Okay. I think I went into their office once freshman year, mm-hmm. uh, but since I wasn't quite dedicated, you know, I just... It's like, okay, that's cool. Those are the prerequisites. And then it's mm-hmm. kind of fallen to the back of my mind. But I found myself using uh, that valuable tool later on when I had, when I really dedicated myself and started taking my mm-hmm. uh, extracurriculars mm-hmm. more seriously. How'd you end up at University of Utah for undergrad? What was, <laughs> was there a story there? So I was in Saudi Arabia. Okay. So uh, <laughs> a little bit of background. Uh, so I've been moving every two to three years of my life. Okay. So... I was originally born in Spain, mm-hmm. in the Andalusian province, in okay. a town called Cadiz. Okay. Right? Um, and from there, we moved around to Venezuela, Argentina, California, Utah, Oregon, Spain again, Saudi Arabia, and then back to Utah. And part of the reason why I came here is because my older brother was studying mechanical engineering here. Mm-hmm. My older brother, Daniel, he's my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, when you move so much, it's mm-hmm. the only person that sticks around with yeah. you. So I was for better or for worse. For better or for worse, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, I was I was happy to come here and still be with him, and it was nice to have that support uh, with the family here and whatnot. So also skiing's fantastic. Okay, All right. <laughs> where, where, where's Daniel now? Daniel's still here. He's working at uh, a company called Pexize. Okay, so okay, so use the pre med office a little bit. Let's talk about your decision to apply to med school. Now, you chose a certain path. Yes. EDP. What does yeah. EP stand for? And let's talk about the strategy. So, EDP stands for Early Decision Program. Okay. Um, and the strategy to it is it's essentially a contractual obligation that defines that if the medical school accepts you, they are the medical school that you will go to. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they will let you know ahead of time, uh, sometime in September, mm-hmm. way before anyone else really knows. And if you don't get accepted through the early decision program, then you're just moved to the regular applicant pool and you have your opportunity to apply to other schools. Mm. However, I personally knew that I wanted to go to the University of Utah. I wasn't certain I was going to get in this year, as I was telling you before the interview. But I knew that if I didn't, I would just work as a biomedical engineer, buff up more of my resume, and save some money and then reapply the following year. Um, but I knew I wanted the University of Utah to know that they were my top choice. And this was a way for them to know for yep. certain. That this is a strong is, signal. Yes. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people say, oh, we're your number one. No. This forces you to put Correct. your money where your mouth is. Exactly. And, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make it any easier to get in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lower the standards or anything of the sort. But it, it does 
really let you let you send a clear message to the to the university you're applying to. Did you talk about this with the pre-med office? I mean, were you kind of bouncing this idea off family or the pre-med office, or it was just kind of in your mind? Uh, Sarah, the girlfriend somewhere? Or, <laughs> no, okay. no. Um, I I had spoken to my uh, father and mother a mm-hmm. lot about it, and um, my my dad was like, "Yeah, Utah's great. <laughs> go, go to that one." Um, and uh, I spoke to the pre-med office, and they 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 tried to somewhat dissuade me from it um, mm-hmm. because it is a risk because yeah. when you apply late you put to all your eggs schools, in one basket exactly yeah. and applying late to other schools you know a lot of them have rolling rolling yeah and you, you're you're less likely to maybe get that coveted interview spot exactly yeah. so i i was fine putting all my eggs in one basket because i was for certain this was a school and why is that alejandro why did you like this school so much so um I had many opportunities to go through uh, the University of Utah's uh, right here, the wonderful healthcare system they have, it, such as my opportunities in bioimmersion. Mm-hmm. I got to not only speak with doctors, but the medical students, and I heard a lot of wonderful things. I also really appreciated the mission statement mm-hmm. that is here, and I like the, the focus on how we have so many opportunities here. Uh, the University of Utah specifically is just, what, a top-tier research facility? Mm-hmm. and. It really is a place that I would find myself able to maximize my potential, really mm-hmm. just learn. Because every time I've ever interacted with anyone here, I mean, I've had, maybe I'm biased, but I've had wonderful, wonderful experiences. That's great. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, thinking back to your interview day, um, did you do any practice MMIs before you got here? Or was that, was that, was that <laughs> kind of method completely new to you? or? And what tips do you have for people? Oh, who... uh, another side note. Another reason why I really want to go was your YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the person watch that watches them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm at least three of those, and my father's probably eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I apologize. Your question was... Oh, like your MMI experience. Uh, I mean, did you do practice MMIs, or was that a completely new method when you showed up here? So I was a little disappointed that uh, at first why we, that they didn't have the one-on-one mm-hmm. interviews because uh, I very much just from my experiences of always meeting people and things like that. I, I I'm a very people person. I enjoy sitting down and having a chat. Uh, the MMIs, I was scared that it would be too short and succinct. Mm-hmm. That that a lot of a lot of potential connection could be lost. But I, I found that to be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I. I love the MMIs. I did practice a bit going through several different questions, you know, uh, the different typical circumstances of what would you do when someone comes in and they need a blood transfusion, but they're a Jehovah's Witness. And mm-hmm. like, you know, those was that one of ours? I don't think, was that one of ours? No, okay. no, that's, that's, an, that's an internet one. No, I, say, I don't, like, the, the I don't one. think we would have that one. So. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But yeah. if, you, if you Google MMI questions, yeah, they, that's, they have some of the just crazy yeah, circumstances. Yeah, all, yeah, the good old internet community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Internet pre-med community. Yep, yeah. exactly. And I've, I've, I enjoyed those questions. They were mm-hmm. challenging. But I also really enjoyed the people asking me uh, the questions. They mm. they engaged you very well. They weren't just there reading off a piece of paper. They they sat down and, I mean, I don't I can't I don't want to elaborate too much on the questions I, I guess. Yes, don't yes. But there was there was one circumstance where someone did something wrong. Yeah. Right. And would I tell on them or not? Yeah. And uh, at first it was a classmate, and I said, "Yes, you know, you have to, you have to tell on them. It's it's the right thing to do." And you approach the student, and then later on you go ahead and can approach uh, the faculty. 
Then later on, that person evolved to my girlfriend. Mm. I was like, okay, well, this is a little more difficult. Yes, I would expect that out of a relationship and things. Then it evolved to my wife. Mm -hmm. At this point, I was kind of laughing with the interviewer mm -hmm. and I was saying, well, if she's my wife, you know, I really appreciate a strong woman, so I probably wouldn't be able to go against her. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I really liked how, how it evolved in many ways, but it was very organic. It, mm -hmm. wasn't, it wasn't a synthetic. Kind of yeah, I mean, I think that's a great fear with MMI that... Um, I mean, yeah. So, what are the what are the reasons we do MMI? I think that there's greater research there. There's a lot of research that shows that yeah, people who do well in MMI do very well in something we call OSCEs mm -hmm. within med school, um, Step Two Clinical Skills Exam. Uh, it is a different type of interaction. But what our physicians are required to do more and more nowadays is you have to walk into a patient's room and form almost that instant connection and talk about treatment plans, delivering bad news, things like that. So it's definitely a skill set. Uh, I think the students, if they, the applicants, if they have the right attitude, it can be a lot of fun because everyone goes through the same experience. So I think it really minimizes bias and chance and you get presented some really cool scenarios and just kind of talking through it and get to meet some really cool, cool people too. Yeah, you know? and it's, it's also kind of a, a wonderful parachute too because if you mess up on one, that's it's not the end of oh, the yes. world. Power of redemption, uh, man. Yeah, yep, there's yep. there's that redemptive capability. Yeah, because, traditional interviews. If you bomb a traditional yeah, interview, that's like that's it. That's like yeah. Um, a, a funny moment that I had is uh, I was I was so nervous, and uh, one of the interviewers, uh, they I don't know, they they put their hand to their chest and said welcome, uh -huh. and I just I. <laughs> I, said, I don't think I told him to do that. Oh, I doubt well, that. Yeah. I, I said, hello, Mr. Welcome. <laughs> I just, I, uh, you thought their name was Mr. Welcome? I, yeah. I don't know. He put his hand to his chest. I was pretty convinced. That's, that's very endearing. I love that. Yeah, it's a good story. All right. So um, where were you when you got the phone call? What were you doing? Uh, I was in the shower. <laughs> I was, it was. Did you answer the phone? In the shower? I, so I, I was... There's a story here. Yeah. Yes. So the, the phone was right outside on the sink and I was showering and I, I hear the, the, my ringtone and I look out and I see U of U Med School. And my first thought was, ah, I must have messed up somewhere. <laughs> Your brain just goes down. Uh, yeah. yeah it, I, I must have written something wrong or misspelled a name. And um, I go ahead and I turn off the water and I answer it. And then I hear your voice. I'm like, oh, this is uncomfortable. So I run over and I grab a towel and you're telling me, hello, is this Alexander? And I'm like, oh. Yeah, because yes. remember it says Alexandra. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was yeah, yes, this is, this is he. And you went ahead and told me the good news. And I just, I started jumping. I, mm -hmm. I was so excited. I was so ecstatic. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was still waiting for, you know, Ashton You still Kutcher think you're going to get the, yeah. the not accepted. Yeah. And it's, it, is, it is that kind of feeling. Like you feel over the top. You're... You're just full of adrenaline and excitement, but there's some part of you that always feels that, mm. you know, imposter syndrome. Like, is do I really deserve it? Mm -hmm. Did they have the wrong name? Yeah. Did Doctor Chan have the wrong email or phone number? <laughs> exactly. But I, I remember I took notes of the things you're telling me because mm. um, I, I went ahead and grabbed a marker and I started writing down on this note card uh, as many things as I could while you're telling me. But I was, I, I think I was hyperventilating because when I look at that note card later on, it, it says, "Good essay." Love volunteering. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I look back and I was like... It was I, in Spanish, too. Remember that? Was all this in Spanish? Oh, this, yeah. You, you actually are very proficient in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a little curious. Where did you learn your Spanish? Oh, uh, I just picked it up here and there. Really? Yeah. 
That's, that's I'm not going to say any Spanish because uh, <laughs> my accent compared to yours is horrible. No, that's French. Oh, no, it's French. Horrible. Yeah, horrible. Horrible. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. So, uh, and then you called your family right afterwards? Oh, immediately. After. Did they believe you? Okay, so they, they're not like, oh, this is not Alejandro just making they, pulling her leg. Yeah, yeah. For, they. I have no idea why, but mm-hmm. they they must see someone much more brilliant than I see. <laughs> <laughs> Don't minimize your accomplishments. Yeah. So no, but I just yeah. But at the same time, you know, my mother. I, I there's only been one moment that she's ever like said one negative thing on me, mm-hmm. and it's when I grew a curly mustache. Mm. Right. Like, like I, with like, the handlebars. With the, the handlebar, the whole thing. Yeah. Like, and that's when I knew. That's a, immediately I shaved it because you know I've. For I've, the people who can't see us right now, you do not have a handlebar no, mustache. No, I don't. Yeah, not okay. currently. Okay. If I did, you come know. up to DC handlebar mustache. Ah, uh, ni idea. Un bigote handlebar. Okay. Oh, I love it. Ooh. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, there's there's the thing with um, Spanish that. I mean, I obviously don't speak with the accent, and uh, that's thanks to my parents. Uh, mm-hmm. When I first went to California, uh, when I first came stateside, mm-hmm. my mom uh, made me practice with hooked on phonics. Mm. Are you familiar with that? Uh, personally, no, but I've heard of it. Yes. yes. It's, it, for those who don't know, it's, I haven't it's, done the program. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not actually not not personally hooked on phonics. It, yeah, <laughs> I, it, I, I've been hooked on phonics. You're hooked I, on phonics. Yeah. I, it, it's the suitcase full of cassettes mm-hmm. uh, that helps you enunciate your vowels. And I remember as a child, my mom would sit me down and put on this thing, and I'd go, hey, Apple. And I'd be, ah, Apple. And I, I, had, I had so much sass about it because I, I hated it. But then eventually, you know, I just, I, I learned to enunciate as an American does. Mm-hmm. My mom was concerned that if I spoke with a Spanish accent, if I talked like this, I, I would have difficulty getting a job in the future. Mm. And... That was a different time. Now I, now I think it'd probably be better. So <laughs> let's jump back to the handlebar mustache. Why oh, was she okay. against that? I, it looked hideous. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I just, I just, I really wanted to grow a curly mustache. I had, I had dreams as a nineteen-year-old. Oh, okay. Really All right. So this is when you're, mustache. this is when you're young. You're yeah. Youth. yeah. Okay. And, All right. It's not no. All right. It's, I'm glad you know, but it really was a big clear signal because mm-hmm. you know, my mother supports me in almost everything that I do, and you know, for her to shoot down that 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 was a clear sign that okay. that was something that. Not well, will they be there? White coat? Will I get to meet them at white coat? Sadly, no. Oh. They are they are in Spain. Okay. Um, but they'll probably come in later on. Sometime okay. I look forward to meeting them. Like, All right. So, how did it feel to know that you got into med school? When did you get the phone call? Uh, September. September. So we're talking almost an entire year. Yes. Like, how, I mean, like, was that hard? Was it annoying? Were people, you know, Um, or or was that just really minimal compared to just the feeling that you got in? You know what I'm saying? Because that's a long time to wait before you actually start. So uh, you would think that the energy dies down, but Mm -hmm. it just ramps up. And, um, I was looking for biomedical engineering jobs the day you, the day before you called me, Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you know, I was like, I'm gonna work as a biomedical engineer. I'll see. And as soon as you gave me the call, it's it, it it's a great feeling to have your life on a track, mm. right? With with the level of uncertainty that comes with applying to medical schools, it's so wonderful to finally know that you know this is what you're gonna do. Now you have this much time to do whatever you want. And I asked a lot of the med students that I had formed connections with and whatnot what they recommended to do. And they all said, travel, just enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I worked part-time at the VA because mm-hmm. uh, they offered me a job after I volunteered. Oh, sweet. And um, they, I, I was 
I just traveled. I, I went to Spain. I went to Japan. I backpacked through Japan for two weeks. I went to wow. Ireland. Do you speak Japanese? No. Okay. I, I, Google Translate is amazing. Okay. And, you know, uh, I've, I've developed a lot of experience moving around so much to be able to communicate with my hands and extremely, you know, verbatious nods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it was... It was it was wonderful. I, I had a wonderful opportunity. I flew standby, so I got to save my money. But I did f- sleep in a couple airports a couple times. Ooh, that's tough. It was yeah. every ten minutes. You're probably reminded not to leave your baggage unattended, right? <laughs> exactly. Like that just comes blaring across. Yeah, and yes, people still leave their baggage unattended. <laughs> so <laughs> I, they, at that point, you'd think they'd have just someone coming around and like chaining it to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, is flying standby common for you? Um, no, I, okay. it was a wonderful opportunity offered by... Because uh, I'm about to say, like, if your, one of your family members works for the airlines correct. or something. Okay, yeah, right. exactly. And so I was able to just fly for cheap paying the tax. And okay. Able to see as much as I can. And I stayed in crappy hostels and mm-hmm. just, you know, living off of 40 bucks, 30 bucks a day, with including room and board. And, <laughs> But it was amazing, you know. You mm-hmm. go, you go around, and you really just develop some interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend it. To, you know, the early decision program I think is a wonderful opportunity for people to, if they get accepted, really help complete those last few things you always wanted to do before you start. Yeah, it's good. Right. It's good. So it sounds like almost like a mini bucket list: travel, um, see your family in Spain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I I love spending time with my grandma, uh, knowing that I'll probably not be able to go back in quite some time because I'll be busy with studies. Well, you, was, still, you can still get breaks here well, and there. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to be there, and I learned how to make tortilla de patata, which is like the special Spanish. It's... Um, it's not a it's not a tortilla. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with what people think of here in America's tortillas. Tostada? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, so it's it's always very difficult because um, Spain is one of those. Oh, tapas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just throwing out all the yeah, Spanish you, words. You so well. Tapas, tortilla, tostada. Muy bien. Yeah. Um, Spain is a difficult thing because not a lot of Spaniards leave the country. Mm. It's so rare that there's a television show in Spain called Spanish People Leaving the Country, um, mm. and where they just go and interview people, and they always ask the same questions like, how are you enjoying your time out of Spain? Don't you miss it? Why don't you just come back? <laughs> and that's what they always ask. And so many times I found myself um, adjunct with Mexican. Mm-hmm. A lot of times growing up... Uh, you mean they're not the same? No, I know, right? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, at this point, it might as well be, because mm-hmm. uh, so throughout my lifetime, every time I'm invited to like a social event or something, mm-hmm. I bring Spanish food. Mm-hmm. And there's always those one or two people who are always like, I bring a tortilla patata or mm. I bring a tapa or something mm. like that. And they always say, where's the tacos? <laughs> <laughs> I was just, oh, oh gosh. Right. <laughs> oh. It's always, it's always a fun time mm. though. Like I've, I've developed a wonderful sense of humor. Mm. I can thank my last name to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my last name is Blitch. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very common Spanish last name. Very common Spanish last name. That's because my uh, grandfather on my father's side is from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, from this, there's there's a town nearby in Georgia though where they originated from called Blitchton and that's where all the blitches are from. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those just oddballs in the family genealogy. Mm-hmm. But. All right, so Alejandro, I'm yes. I'm not going to hold you to this, but what kind? You know, I'm just curious today. 
what before med school starts, mm-hmm. which will be soon, what kind of doctor do you want to be, and why? A good one. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay, but, I know, but what field? What uh, discipline? It's so I have a heavy interest in orthopedics. Okay. Because one of my mentors and friends, which is Dr. Moore, that I mm-hmm. made at the Hope Clinic, is an orthopedic surgeon, and he just. It, I, I really enjoy the mechanical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge geek and gamer at heart, so I've always worked with my hands and have those reflexes. So they always say surgery is good for you. And I've I've always understood the mechanics of it, bringing in my biomedical engineering background back mm-hmm. in. So I look forward to being an orthopedic surgeon and prop like probably developing mm-hmm. some sort of new prosthetic or whatnot, combining both of my schools of knowledge. For I mean, that sounds. Fantastic, and that just lends itself to the bio innovate mm-hmm. bench to bedside kind of program. Yeah. And a lot of, I know I know a lot of the students are interested in orthopedics. They're doing a lot of research. So, Correct. Yeah. yeah, that's and I, that's why anyone, kids, adults. Oh, you know, so I love pediatrics. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed. I was I volunteered at the emergency room down at the pediatric clinic, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. But its lows are low. It mm-hmm. always sucks to see a kid hurt. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's always so great because, you know, children are adorable and it's mm-hmm. it's so fun to just help interact with them and and be able to help them because, you know, doctors are this magical creature sometimes to these children. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, last yeah. question, Alejandro. What advice do you give to people out there who are thinking about applying to medical school or maybe in the middle of pr- applying to medical school? What would you tell them? What would you say to them? Um, so try not to be cookie cutter. I mean, it's important that you complete all the required prerequisites and the volunteering and the patient exposure, but really just be yourself, right? Discover your own capacity in who you are and what you love and really test your limits on on your comfort zone, right? Don't be scared to push out and just approach someone who you know is in some clinic and say, hey, is it okay if I come shadow or if I come work for you guys or whatnot, you know, and develop those skills that that you have. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when I feel like you guys are looking through Mm -hmm. thousands of applicants, right, the the thing that will really stand out is just the person who is a person, right? Not just this robot who's completed the job. And that, that would be my greatest recommendation. Awesome. Well, Hondo, thanks for coming on. And I'll have to have you come back after yeah. med school starts and just to kind of get your perspective on, because there's an image of med school, what it's going to be like, and then you mm-hmm. get it there and it's going to exactly. be different or same or might, you know, so I think it's a beautiful journey you're about to start. So, so far, I'm trepidatious. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little scared. <laughs> oh, you're going to do great. Cool. I did want to ask you a question. Sure. Oh, wanted... yeah. Throw the questions back at me. Yeah. So um, you working in psychiatry, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the greatest passion that led you into that field? Like, why did you choose? And specifically, it's for teens. Ch- yeah, child psychiatry, child psychiatry, child adolescent psychiatry. Yeah. Um, great question. I, I wanted to be a pediatrician for the longest time. I mm-hmm. loved working with kids. And so the first two years of med school, it was peds, 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 peds. And then during my third year, that's where you go out and do different rotations in the yeah. hospitals and clinics. Uh, my rotation in pediatrics was just not what I thought it was going to be. It was not very positive. It was much more difficult. And um, it was kind of a wake-up call because, you, you know, you think you're going to go down this path 
and you could, you know, kind of put all your tension focus towards this path. And then when you do your audition, when you actually get to do that, it's like, oh, you know, it's eh, not really for me. Yeah. I did enjoy talking to a lot of the young kids and teenagers, um, and I enjoyed getting to know them and talking to them. And a lot of pediatrics I learned uh, was dealing with babies, and I enjoy babies, but I just found it really stressful because they couldn't tell you what was wrong, and they're so little, and it's just, you know, it was it was really hard. But I did enjoy, I remember specifically uh, a teenager got admitted, um, newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes, you know, and just the educational process of teaching her what that meant and teaching the family and kind of processing what that means and just the huge shock that came over the family. And and I enjoyed that. I loved that. And so one of my mentors in med school said, if I really like talking to young kids and teenagers, I should really give um, do this rotation called child and adolescent psychiatry. Yeah. I didn't really know that was a field or discipline. I had no idea. Uh, so I did a rotation in it. And I just loved it because that's all you do is talk to young kids and teenagers. So I, I made a switch. I went from pediatrics to child and adolescent psychiatry, and that's that's kind of that's why I switched. You know, because just working with young kids. And to to this day, like you know, people ask me all the time, "Oh, you know, do you still do clinical stuff?" Totally. Like I always think any administrator or educator should hold on to their clinical knowledge. And so I do rotations over at Uni. That's our uh, psychiatric facility here. Yeah. So I'm an inpatient hospitalist, meaning I don't have an outpatient clinic. I just take care of kids and teenagers who get admitted to the hospital for a wide variety of reasons. <coughs> and I take care of them for a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then when they're feeling better and doing better, uh, they get discharged. And everyone who gets discharged gets an outpatient plan. And so that's when we connect them to resources in the community. So I don't, I don't really have that longitudinal relationship yeah. uh, with them. Because I, I just know them for these short, intensive bursts of time, not kind of a, a longer, you know, I don't have monthly check-ins with them. I'm not an outpatient person. Yeah, so, but yeah. I, I feel like I feel like what you have there, you bring a lot to it back here because you, you have a certain skill with mm -hmm. speaking to essentially us kids, yeah. right? Cause well, really I was going to say that, but, you know, you are the millennial generation and... There's a certain way that you, know, you, you guys approach things, and so it could be helpful. Yeah, yeah. but you know, yeah, I, I think it all goes just back to communication and leadership and teamwork mm -hmm. and those skills. And I think those skills easily exist in psychiatry or orthopedics. I think they exist in medicine in general, yeah. but I also think that has to exist within a medical school and how you educate and how you teach and how you um, are leaders in complex organizations. And I, I, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think those skills are easily translatable across multiple dimensions. So yeah. great question. Huh, what other questions do you have for me? Oh, well, Hit me. okay. So one of the other ones that I wanted to know, because some of the things that, uh, I mean, personally I struggled with and from what other people, people have told me they struggled with was the the emotional drain that mm -hmm. working in healthcare can do right you don't yeah. have to be a doctor specifically like nurses have it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. i actually did a rotation just shadowing nurses because i was curious on that aspect and um how do you deal with that emotional drain because i'm certain you see some cases yeah. where it's just i think you need so to me that your question is finding wellness and personal balance mm -hmm. And it is intense. The journey is long. It's hard because in medicine, you deal with death, dying, the inherent unfairness of life, how people are just unlucky. Yeah. 
um, it's rough and <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, life's not fair. Life's, I mean, the most dangerous thing that you and I do every day is getting behind the wheel of a car and driving around. Yeah. Because like you're driving, you're driving 50, 60, 70 miles per hour and by the grace of God, you know, you know, someone could just like run a stoplight and hit you. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think, I think it's good to take breaks. I think it's good to have a healthy family supporting you. I think it's good to have a sense of humor. I think it's good to have a life outside of medicine, but it's really hard. And I think as you progress in your medical training, there are certain fields and disciplines that definitely have, I would say maybe kind of like, like a more of a heavy lifestyle or a more intense lifestyle. Like neurosurgery is a great example. Yeah. yeah they have to be on call a fair amount. Yeah. And those operations are very long and it's very hard and God bless them. We need great um, neurosurgeons. That's not something I could have done because that's not who I am or what I've, you know, or what I valued or, you know, and I just, it doesn't allow me to have time to do stuff with family and loved ones and hobbies. So, yeah. You know, I think everyone kind of has to find that balance. And, and, and people are different. People have different ways of approaching things and, and dealing with the stress. I mean, so to me, like, med school is not super different than undergrad. I mean, how did you find relief from the stress and the grind as you went through undergrad? Because, uh, you know, I would say undergrads also stress. Yeah. yeah. Um, I find a lot of comfort working in groups. Okay. Right. Um, some of my most satisfying memories in working undergrad were falling asleep in the engineering building mm. with three or four other people just working all night on this code and waking up the following morning and it's just dusk and mm. you get to you wa finally walk out finished project and it's that sense of unity mm. that you're not alone in this that really helps you deal with it um i feel though a lot of times people have this image of doctors as these superhumans, right? They, they're able to deal with all this. They come into a room and they know how to assess a situation when someone's uh, injured or hurt. But from my experiences of shadowing and just sitting down and having, you know, not so much in the medical field. I actually learned most from the doctors I shadowed by inviting them to lunch mm. and having a meal with them. That's a good tip. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good idea. It, it really, it, you really get to see this human side because... One of my favorite things I ever learned from a doctor was when they said, I don't know. Right? It's such an odd thing yeah. to hear your doctor say because yeah. everyone always comes in and is like, well, the doctor's going to know what's happening to me. Yeah. It's so often where they just don't know. There's a hierarchical nature to medicine that mm -hmm. lends itself to that. Yeah. And it's hard to say I don't know. Yeah. I, I always feel like doctors have it tough because if someone goes to a doctor and they pay $300 to see a doctor and they don't get anything, the doctor says, go home and sleep. Ah, like, oh, I wasted $300 to get told yeah. to go home and sleep. But then if they go to the doctor and the doctor gives them an antibiotic, like, ah, oh, the doctor's always just giving me pills. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't win. Yeah, you can't win, but you do. You, you win by never seeing that patient back. Mm -hmm. That's the way I, I see it. I was okay. always happy when a patient would say, thank you. Uh, for helping me uh, see you soon I say I hope I never see you again I hope you are just healthy and happy for the rest of your life but in the case that you're not I'll be here yeah. and that's that's one of the things I've always enjoyed as as it just being a simple you know Spanish translator hands in, a, in the healthcare field mm -hmm. uh, I have a one last question alright last you. question hit me um, so uh, medical field has now transitioned. A lot of times when I speak to older doctors, to younger doctors, 
there's there's this change in which it's more focused on this aspects of teamwork, of patient autonomy, and of of a communication, right? And I really appreciate that because one of the biggest complaints that we hear nowadays is that doctors don't spend enough time with their patients mm-hmm. and they lack that connection. What is for you? Uh, the biggest struggle or the biggest difficulty you find when working in the field, very deep and intrinsically in it, in the shift, right? Like, how do you see doctors struggling to to make that connection with their patients or whatnot? Uh, I mean, you're exactly right, Alejandro. Like, I think, again, I can only talk from my perspective Mm -hmm. um, as an inpatient child psychiatrist. So one of the things that gets in the way is that people are busy it's a very busy atmosphere and you know maybe more so in psychiatry than other fields but there's a lot of profit in medicine there's a lot of money in medicine Mm -hmm. there's a machine and so one of the more negative things that i have to deal with or i get to work with is health insurance companies i've heard and you know and i understand that they have a role we have a role everyone has a role but it's really hard when um, I feel pressure uh, from insurance companies to discharge someone early, or I feel pressure that the medication I may recommend is not on the approved list. Mm-hmm. Then maybe I can get on the approved list, but I have to fill out twenty pages and fact, you know, facts and all that stuff. So I think the teamwork becomes essential because I think you need to gather information as a team and clearly present it to outside stakeholders, which includes um, insurance companies, which may include work, you know, because we're talking FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act. There's like, there's all these people that kind of count on the system to run efficiently and to run on time. So I think you need to get everyone hands on deck to present a unified, um, you know, diagnosis, unified kind of working, you know, we may not know what's going on, but, you know, this is what we're thinking. We need more time or we want to order this test or we want to start this medication. And I, I think it's essential to work as a team. And this is why, I mean, you look at what's going on across the country, more and more doctors are joining group practices or mm-hmm. they're joining hospitals or they're becoming tenured or salaried faculty because they don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the capacity to be solo practitioners because essentially you need to hire all these people to fill out the insurance forms and you know deal with the electronic medical record and all this stuff. And so there is definitely a movement in our country away from being a solo doc to work in these practices where you're supported by nurses, physician assistants, like all these different types of providers just to help the patient and help the doctor. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. It, it, it does. Um, but that just kind of brings up the, the other idea of was it easier when America was shifting to a socialized medicine? Because from Spain, we have uh, socialized health care, right? I, as, as medicine's real cheap for me there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, I don't have a good answer because I, like, I, I think our country is struggling with this. Yeah. Like, what should we do? Where should we go? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, I think every system has its strengths and weaknesses. And mm-hmm. I think our, I use the word balkanized, like coming out of the Balkan Wars. Huh. You know, like, there's all these different factions within the American healthcare system. There's these different insurance companies, hospital groups, physician, like, all these different entities and they're all kind of competing and jostling and there's winners and losers and that's how our society is set up and so i don't know 
you know, like the VA, you know, you've all turned the VA, you work for the VA. It's a great example. It's like really different. Yes. And there's some things that really work well in the VA and there's other things that don't work so well. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't have a good, like I'm a, I'm a doctor. It's not afraid <laughs> to say I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I can tell you that, um, it's changing. It's, will continue to change. The problems you face will be slightly different than the ones that I face, but I think our system is always evolving. And that's kind of the beauty and the frustration of, like, the American healthcare system. Like, a lot of innovation, a lot of yeah. disparity, a lot of winners and losers, and everyone kind of falls in between, in a way. So, I'm sorry. I'm trying to no, be as no, politically no, no. correct as You're, possible. I know. Yeah. I know. It's, yeah. it's difficult because it does get into a political issue and whatnot. But it's... We'll save that for next time. Yeah, we'll save yeah. that for, for another interview. All or right. Not. Cool. Well, Alejandro, this has been fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Wow, oh. we've been talking a long time. All right, <laughs> cool. Well, let's, uh, you know, I wish you the very best during orientation week. Yes. And uh, we'll chat again. Yeah, right? I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.